Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. What a show for you today. I can say that ahead of time because I just know it's going to be fantastic. Hello, good morning, welcome to the program. Michael John up speaking right now in the National Press Theater. Actually, just left there once again. I seem to be up there a lot these days. But Michael John is announcing that he is going to, he's throwing his hat in for the Conservative Party leadership. Of course, the party holds their convention in just two weeks' time. So now we're starting to get a bit of a race. We're starting to see some life in the race, and we'll have two of the three candidates on the program today. Michael John will join us just around noon and trying to settle on a time with Maxime Bernier, but uh, Mad Max will join us as well. Uh, Kelly Leach could not make it today. She launched her website over the weekend, so after having a rather uh, soft start, you might say, we've got action on that front. Kelly Leach joining the fray in terms of a social media presence, and yesterday, Maxime Bernier holding a campaign launch event in his home riding, his home area of the Bose. So a fantastic show lined up, two of the three leadership contenders. We'll also speak to Elise Mills from Conservative Voice. we got Adrian Batra from Sun Media dropping by to talk about Sophie. I know many of you still upset about Sophie. The hashtag Pray for Sophie still doing so well on social media. You know, we need to pray for her because she just, she's so hard done by. St. Sophie of Chatelaine, pray for us. So we'll talk about that, but also there are some crazy liberal ideas that I, I, I want to let you know about. Crazy liberal ideas in terms of what the the governing party wants to do come their convention, their policy ideas. See, the, the conservatives, they're holding their convention and they're going to be talking about policy and how to take things back from the liberals and all of that. But did you know that the the conservatives are, or sorry, the liberals are actually holding a policy convention. They hold the reins of power. They hold the reins of power and they will be looking at what to do with that power. How does this grab you? A department of peace. That's right. We need a department of peace, not because we have wars in Canada, but because the liberals want us to go around the world trying to stop wars. We already have that with the U.N. That is their main goal, right? The main goal of the United Nations, go around the world, stop the wars. Bashar al-Assad, the al-Nusra Front, they they go in there and they try and, and stop things. They go in there and try and negotiate peace. How's it working out with the U.N.? This global body that we're all supposed to trust, this global body that the new liberal government puts an awful lot of trust in themselves. It's not going so well, is it? So let's add some Canadian bureaucrats to go around the world and sing kumbaya to everyone. That's one of the liberal ideas. They also want to talk about things like lowering the voting age to 16. It's not, it's not enough that they're already redesigning our electoral system to benefit themselves. You know, they've determined that the last election is the last one under our old system. They're going to come up with a new system. They say they're going to consult, but of course, it's six out of ten. Six out of ten seats on the committee go to the Liberals. And even if the the committee puts forward something that the Prime Minister and Cabinet don't like, well, they're not bound to it. 
as the minister said last week, their their input is is invaluable. Was it binding? Their input is invaluable. Hmm. So no, not binding. And now they want to lower the voting age to 16. And we know that leftists or young people, when they're voting, are often leftist. Why? Because they go from having their parents pay for everything and looking after them to thinking that the government should pay for everything and look after them. Because they don't have enough money. Then they get older, they start paying taxes, and they realize, "Eh, this isn't working out so well for me. Other crazy uh, ideas? The, The craziest one. Let me jump to the craziest liberal idea. Because the audience sitting, listening over regular radio in the National Capital Region is going to get this for sure. We already have official bilingualism, which ostensibly is supposed to provide services to citizens in either of Canada's official languages, English or French. I have no problem with that. I think that's the way it should be. There is a large Francophone population across the country. Services should be provided in either official language. But you and I all know, within the sound of my voice, we all know that that's not what bilingualism is about in essence now. There is more effort put into the workplace than serving the public, meaning civil servants wanting to be supervised in the language of their choice, civil servants wanting to get language training in the other language, translation of meeting minutes, memos, all of that. Studies of how bilingual the federal workplace is in the national capital region. And it costs us billions a year to comply with official bilingualism, whether it's the simultaneous translation in Parliament, which is absolutely how it should be. Absolutely. We've, they've always been allowed to speak English or French in Parliament. It's just before some people wouldn't know what the other guys were saying. There are MPs from Quebec that don't speak English, just as there are MPs from across Canada that don't speak French or not sufficient French. To this, the Liberals want to add something. Actually, no, they want to add a lot of somethings. They have a proposal to make Canada's Aboriginal languages official languages. That's right. Instead of just English and French, the Aboriginal languages would also be official languages of Canada. Hmm. All right, so would it be what? English, French, and Cree, or Mohawk? What? No, there's 60 different Aboriginal languages in Canada. That's from StatsCan. 60 different Aboriginal languages across the country. Can you say unworkable? 62 official languages. How would that work with simultaneous translation? See, the translators have special spots. You can't see them inside the House of Commons, but they have special boxes so that they can see the people speaking. It allows them to to get a sense of what they're saying, how they're saying it, and do proper simultaneous translation. But there's only two languages, so they don't need that much space. You add 60. They have to be on call at all times in case somebody speaks one of those languages. All of a sudden, debate's going on in English, and you want to speak Mi'kmaq? Okay, well, we've got to have a translation, but not just between Mi'kmaq and English and French, but Mi'kmaq and English and French and Cree. Oh, and Mohawk. And the Algonquin, that's a little bit different, too. Okay, so we need that. 62 different languages being translated simultaneously. 62 different languages for every memo, every press release. The courts hearing cases 
in all 62 languages. The people that put this forward probably thought they were being very noble. And the Liberal Party right now is all about uh, finding common ground with Canada's First Nations. It's all about reconciliation with Canada's First Nations. So I'm sure they thought, you know, this would be something really nice, and we need to preserve those languages. Preserving those languages is absolutely a noble goal. But making them official languages, given the, the, the structure that we have now, given the laws that we have now on how governments have to operate with our two official languages, that would be insane and completely and utterly unworkable. These are just some of the ideas. I'll bring you more. I'll string them out throughout the day that the Liberals will be discussing at their convention in Winnipeg at the same time as the Conservatives are holding their convention in Vancouver. Remember, I'll be out at that convention in, well, less than two weeks' time now. I'll be out at that convention. We'll broadcast live on the Friday from the convention floor. Uh, Of course, given the time difference, uh, we're kind of up and on the air before most Vancouverites are getting their coffee. So, uh, but it won't be a lot of activity, but we'll bring you a lot of interesting discussions from that convention. But whatever the conservatives discuss, they're not in power. The liberals are in power. And this really nice idea of let's reconcile with Canada's First Nations and make their languages uh, official languages, that is fraught with danger. And I'm sure some of the people that would support this idea would call up and say, well, we wouldn't make all 60 official languages. Okay, well, where would you cut it off? Which language would you say you're not good enough to be an official language? And how long do you think that would last before our courts if this was passed through? Ideas have consequences, and you have to look at the next step. If you do A, what does it mean for B? I don't think the liberals are doing that, not on this policy, not on many of them. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back with more in minutes, including sexist climate change. Elise Mills coming up. Michael Chong will bring you more of that. Beyond the News with Bilo. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Got a pumped up show for you today. Michael Chong joining us. Elise Mills coming up shortly. She's with Conservative Voice. But Michael Chong just announcing a little while ago that he is uh, absolutely throwing his hat into the race. The, uh, the other candidate that's coming on is Maxime Bernier. We'll firm up a time with him in the, uh, in the next commercial break. We're just back and forth on messages right now trying to firm that up. But Maxime Bernier holding a, uh, an event this weekend in the Bose, very well attended. Michael Chong just giving his reasoning for joining the race in a minute. And then tomorrow we will hear from Kelly Leach, who announced more than a month ago now, but has been fairly quiet, but she's starting to ramp up as now. So we've got some excitement. But why are they running? I mean, that's the main question. If you are a small government, less intrusive government conservative, are these people offering you anything? Are they offering you something different than what the liberals are talking about? Department of Peace and 62 uh, 
official languages and declaring sugar a toxic but not pot and saying climate change is sexist. Yeah, I'll give you details on that in a moment. Well, hopefully they are. Right now, let's listen in on a portion of what Michael Chon was saying just a little while ago in the National Press Theater. I'm ready to be Conservative Party leader because I believe it's time for new leadership for Canada. It's time to attract new people to our party by putting forward new and ambitious ideas based on conservative principles, principles such as a belief in balanced budgets, lower taxes, and the efficient delivery of government services, principles such as a belief in the power of free markets and free trade, principles such as the belief that at what the root of what it means to be a conservative is to conserve our environment for future generations. Principles such as a belief in individual liberties and the need to protect individual citizens from an overly intrusive state. And principles such as a belief in democratic reform in order to curb the power of the PMO and party leaders to control the people's elected members of parliament. Michael Chong, we'll hear more from him just after 12 today. If you've got questions you want me to ask Michael Chong, then please email me, beyondthenews at cfra.com, beyondthenews at cfra.com, or you can tweet them at me, leave them on my Facebook page. It's easy, twitter.com slash Lilly, facebook.com slash Lilly. Let me know what you think, because I want to take your questions as well as my own to these leadership candidates. Same thing for Maxime Bernier. And then, as I said, tomorrow we'll be speaking with, with Kelly Leach. Why are they running? What do they offer that's different? That's part of what I want to talk about. Do they offer something different than the government that turns around and says, well, climate change is sexist? In the Globe and Mail today, a story about our esteemed environment minister, Catherine McKenna, the MP for Ottawa Centre. It says, as Canada's environment minister pushes forward plans to dramatically cut carbon emissions, she is lashing out at Gender climate deniers who failed to acknowledge that in a warming world, women fare worse. Such people are a grouchy subcategory of climate deniers, Catherine McKenna said after hearing from outrage critics on social media who mocked the notion that climate change is sexist. Yep, that's something Catherine McKenna put out there. I hate the term climate change deniers. It's like trying to equate the, the Holocaust and climate change. I reject the premise of your statement. I reject the premise of your assertion. I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. Brian Lilly, Beyond the News, back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I will need you, you conservatives, supporters, in every city. What I want to offer is a limited government a government that will respect taxpayers, that will respect future generation. Maxime Bernier yesterday in the Beauce. If you haven't been to the Beauce, absolutely beautiful part of the country. Probably not one that most people are going to go to for tourist reasons because it's, it's kind of off the beaten track. You go up to Quebec City and then head south. It, it's that eastern part of the province that runs along the Maine and New Hampshire borders. It's just oh, stunning, absolutely stunning. That's where Maxime Bernier comes from. That's his power base. Is he, is he going to be able to translate that across the country? What about Michael Chong? Is he going to be able to move out of southwestern central Ontario, move across the country? Kelly Leach, same question. At least we've got some movement now. At least we've got some activity. And 
I don't know. It's got me excited. What about Elise Mills? She is the executive director over at Conservative Voice, good friend of mine in this program. Elise, what are you thinking? Well, good morning. It's exciting. Uh, It's a very early morning for you. You're joining us from Vancouver, so thank you for waking up and, and having your Wheaties early. Oh, I, well, always for you, Brian. I, I love joining you and having conversations like this. I'm, I'm excited like you are because there is some movement. And then this morning when Michael Chong announced his uh, intent to run for leader, um, he actually talked about some policy. And I, I, I happen to think that's the best part of this. We're, having, we're now having the beginning of a conversation, which I don't think we were necessarily having when Kelly Leach announced and unfortunately, when Maxime Bernier announced, it was the launch of their movements, but there was very little meat on the bone there. Michael Chong is still talking to reporters, and, and I'm, I'm watching this on Twitter, and I'm thinking, okay, he's much more interesting than, than I started out believing this morning. So it, I, I think we're going to have a good conversation. Well, actually, um, can we play that, that clip of Michael Chong again that we played earlier, guys? Uh, the one where he talks about small government and such. I just want you to listen to this and then react, because I agree. He he went to areas that I wasn't expecting, and I appreciate that. And and by the way, uh, just confirmed in the break, everyone wants to be here at 1130. So an hour from now, we'll have Maxime Bernier on, Kelly Leach tomorrow in the noon hour, and Michael Chong at noon today. But this is you said Chong was talking about policy before the reporters even got to him. I think... Because he's always portrayed as this big, soft, red Tory and all of that. He went to areas that I think would surprise many people that essentially the media types that just want a liberal in a blue tie. And Michael effectively said today, that's not me. I'm running to be Conservative Party leader because I believe it's time for new leadership for Canada. It's time to attract new people to our party by putting forward new and ambitious ideas based on conservative principles. Principles such as a belief in balanced budgets, lower taxes, and the efficient delivery of government services. Principles such as a belief in the power of free markets and free trade. Principles such as the belief that at what the root of what it means to be a conservative is to conserve our environment for future generations. Principles such as a belief in individual liberties and the need to protect individual citizens from an overly intrusive state and principles such as a belief in democratic reform in order to curb the power of the PMO and party leaders to control the people's elected members of parliament. All right, Elise, Mm -hmm. did that surprise you? It did. It did. It actually really excites me because he's talking my talk. Um, And and this is the conversation that conservatives from coast to coast to coast need to be having, which is we need to begin with the premise of what those conservative values are. So it's personal liberties, freedoms, and limited government. That is the starting point that should be where we're starting with all candidates. I like the idea <clears throat> that he's talking about with taxation, because if you extend that clip, he starts talking about reducing income taxes and favoring a consumption tax, which I'm a big believer in, because if you're looking for more revenue, and all governments are, and conservative to liberal to NDP, they they pretty much are, because once you get into government, you realize you've got to be able to pay the way somehow. The best way to do that is through the consumption taxes and not go after somebody's income. So I share that philosophy, but what's more important to me is that it brings around a huge conversation that conservatives get to have 
on in, that's actually in our wheelhouse. We're not going. We're not in a responsive way as we have been since the election, where we're responding to the progressives' uh, comments or arguments or debates that they spearhead. There's we're sunny actually ways. Having, yeah, we're having a family conversation, and I think that becomes. I think for for Chong's campaign today, they can take some ownership of that, and that's something to be proud of because they're changing the conversation, and we desperately needed to change the dial. Uh, let me ask you about factions and such, and, and I know that you want to focus on personal liberty and uh, and economics, but Chon was often dismissed by some as a very red Tory. Kelly Leach, you know, same sort of thing. And Maxime, well, he's not really a conservative, he's a libertarian. To me, these are all parts of the coalition. And what I've been mm-hmm. preaching lately is you don't win by kicking people out of your tent. You win yeah. by building. And, and, and I think... Uh, it'll be interesting to see what Kelly Leach has to say tomorrow. I, I know where Max is. They are both trying to reach outside of where people perceive them, and I think that's important. Well, political marketing has got to be on their minds because you're not just talking to the conservative base. Yeah, that's your that's your important audience right now. But in order for you to get the, to be able to levitate above the fray, you need to be able to engage with Canadians that don't hold a conservative membership. So you're going to generate that media interest. What sets you apart? Uh, you know, how dynamic is your campaign? And quite frankly, if I can, you know, I'm going to be brutally honest here, Kelly Leach's uh, campaign um, announcement fell really flat with me. I think... Well, she didn't do anything, and she didn't launch social media. She didn't do any, she didn't no. do any interviews. Well, she did. She went on, uh, you know, she went on with Rosie Barton on two, Power and Politics. Two, two, and week, cried. two weeks after the fact. Yeah, two weeks after so, the fact. So there was no media before that. And then the next time we see her, she's apologizing for something that was in the conservative campaign book before the campaign particularly started. I think whoever advised her to do that did her a disservice because she's actually, as you, as you know, she's an incredibly intelligent person. I think she, she brings a lot of conversation to the table in regards to policy. I don't think it showed her best side. And, um, and you know, I, quite frankly, I think that's going to hurt her. She's also, she didn't come into that conversation understanding that she hadn't done any media and that this would be the first time on a national show people outside of the conservative beltway in Ottawa would see her because she's not that well known outside of Ottawa or outside of Ontario. In fact, I think outside of the conservative circles, most Canadians couldn't pinpoint who she is, and most conservatives don't know her very well or at all. So this was her first entry point, and I just think it felt really flat and very short of my expectations of her. Um, With Maxime, I think he gets trapped into that Quebec conversation, so politically speaking on the marketing side, he needs to be able to to be that Canadian conservative candidate, and I think that he needs to be talking about those policies I know he's capable of doing, which is, you know, he's talking about, I, I err on the side of libertarian. I relate to a lot of what he's, what he talks about. He needs to get out there and do that more. Um, and he needs to, to make sure that his, his uh, online presence is, is, is friendly to the millennial audience, which I don't know if it is so much right now. I haven't looked at his yet. I'm just looking at Kelly Leach's right now because she just launched her website on the weekend. And uh, still somewhat dated. And in these days, you you can't run a a campaign without a real online presence. It's got to be all of it. You've got to have the website. You've got to have the Instagram account, Twitter, Facebook, a YouTube channel. And all of it has to be going all the time. 
I agree. So think about this. Entering the social media world, as you just said, I agree absolutely with you. So, I mean, some basics. Your website should be mobile device friendly. So whether you have an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever, you should be able to load it and it loads properly. Maxine and Kelly's don't. Um, But the other thing is that she had not really done a launch. She does that interview with Rosie Barton on Power and Politics where she's tearfully apologizing um, I won't even get into to that discussion, but then what's the conversation then you're having on social media? There hadn't been very much done before that, so now she's in a responsive mode on Twitter where, you know, those people that are looking to attack her are going to attack her. She's, she, she's responding to someone else's conversation, and I think that was the first mistake there. She didn't offer something of her own, and she had such a huge opportunity on a national show like that to be able to carve out who she really is. Uh, I think she started on her back foot there, where if you look at Michael Chong today, the exact opposite. What are we talking about? We're talking about Michael Chong's ideas. And that's where every campaign should be really beginning. Uh, he, he he had a coordinated launch and uh, a smart move on his part. Now, I just brought up his website on my iPhone. And I can tell mobile you, friendly. It, it's mobile friendly right away. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people think, oh, no, it's only the millennials that are doing that. Uh, I'll tell you, Elise. The rebel audience is not predominantly millennial, and the majority of our traffic is mobile. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's tablets, it's cell phones, it, desktop is a shrinking, shrinking market for everyone. It, it, exactly, exactly. If you're for me, you and I live on our phones. Uh, you know, I, this morning when I my woke mother up, is now living on her i uh, tablet, so. <laughs> My mom, as she's sitting in Spain right now, I know she's not sitting at a desktop. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, and it's it's sort of embarrassing that, you know, there's so many political marketing gurus in this country. I think it's one of the more inflated markets. And there's a lot of people have a lot of good ideas. That's the first thing that you should be telling your candidate. I need to get this all set up and ready for mobile audiences. I mean, desktop's great, but, um, and you need to have a payer system as well. If you're looking to donate, I mean, I look at Maxime's uh, site. When I looked at it on my Samsung this morning, he he talks about, he has one of his first events, um, uh, I think on May 26th in Vancouver, right around the Conservative Convention. And, you know, there's a there's a space there to make a donation. Well, I can't do that on my, on my device. You can't so. donate on your phone? Well, you you have to open it up larger. You, you know, it's not. Um, oh, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not intuitive. See, and these are the sins of <clears throat> modern day politicking. Well, it's hard. I'm it's not having bad together. breath while you kiss the baby. Well, you know, I'm I'm not. I'm a Gen Xer, so I mean, if I'm complaining about it, it it's one of those. It's a small thing, but I expected more, and I think when. You know, if they're listening to this conversation, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that I'm the only one that's expecting that. Everybody's going to expect these silly, small things to be done. Getting into the larger context, what I said about Kelly Leach versus, say, Michael Chong's announcement or Maxine's announcement, I think, I think it holds true, is that you want to be out there really being the owner of the conversation. Michael Chong's launch, I think, to date is the most successful launch we've seen, albeit we only have three. We have, I don't know, six or seven possibly coming. Um, and, I, you know, this is just the beginning. So, and I think what we can say about Michael Chong is that, 
I don't know if anyone perceives him to be that front-runner type candidate, but what he will become, and I absolutely believe this, is he will force the other candidates to have the conversations that he began today, and that's really good for conservatives. It will be interesting to see Max and Michael debate as well. Uh, because they, they do share some geography in their policy wheelhouse. So that libertarian streak of, of reduced government, personal liberties and freedoms, and the idea that, you know, some of the stuff that's coming to the convention floor, like, you know, the same-sex marriage policy, <clears throat> policy, I think it's number 70, that's something that uh, candidates like Michael and Max will, I think, you know, will will win on for the majority of that new breed of conservatives. Because yeah. conservatives like me, Brian, and you and I have privately had this conversation, this old debate between those progressive conservatives before the merger, you know. I, I think I, it's overblown. It's old. It's stale dated. What year are we in? I mean, oh, I'm from such and such a place, so I'm an old red Tory. What does red yeah, Tory that... mean? Because... I'm part of that new breed of conservative that's a fiscal conservative, and I want, you to, I want the government out of my bedroom. They have no place there, and no conservative should be limiting anybody's uh, well, freedoms. They, they, they have no place in your bedroom, but as we've learned, governments across this country will tell you how to light it and what door handle to put on the, the door on the way in. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day. I'm way beyond time, Elise. You're going to sit down with me when I'm in Vancouver in two weeks' time, and you're going to come on this program in person. I look forward to it. Thank you for the invitation. I oh, that wasn't an invite. That, you oh. were voluntold. <laughs> Elise <laughs> Mills, Executive Director you. of Conservative Voice. I'm Brian Lilly. More on the conservative leadership. You want to join the conversation? 521-TALK. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. An exciting day in politics. We've got another candidate jumping into the race. We had Maxime Bernier relaunch. We're going to talk to Bernier in about 40 minutes' time, Michael Chon in just over an hour, and Kelly Leach tomorrow. Because if you want to speak to a conservative audience, this is the place to do it. What do you think on this? 521-TALK, 521-8255. Michael calling in. You want Sean to cut taxes? I think he said he would. Uh, good morning to you, uh, Dr. Byron. A few things I'd like to say. The finance minister said, if, if you recall back, the pension will not be getting a raise on the pension because they gave them all themselves a raise. That's number one. Number two, the person said he was supposed to cut taxes. He just wanted people to hear what he says. If he means that, Having to put it on paper and sign the paper stating that he he will cut the taxes. Well, as we learned with Dalton McGinty, Michael, that doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot, does it? Well, you know, it's not right. But he, he did say he wants to lower personal income taxes and raise consumption taxes. So if he followed through on that, and this is something conservatives no, have long— it, Hold on, let me finish. It's something right. conservatives have long advocated. He would dramatically cut income taxes, but then— We'd rely more on HST, so the HST might go back up to fifteen percent instead of thirteen. You know, because you know, it's not fair to the pensioners. I'm on the pension, okay. And uh, we had a rent, a rent control board. Do, do you pay tax on your pension? Yes. Well, yes. Then, well, then you would probably end up paying less. Because I'm telling you why, we had a rent control board. McGinty took it off, and it's not fair to the pensioners. 
I'm not only I'm I'm not the only person who's on pension. Other people is, and that's not fair to the pension. I I assist for them to bring the rent control board out, and they can't raise the rent so much. They can't raise because where it is now, everybody's rent going over overboard. It's ridiculous. All right. They they want my vote. They better they better smart smarten up, or, or or else I won't vote. Period. Thanks for the call, Michael. Uh, thank you very much for your patience. All right. Let's see. Uh, Greg writes in, and if you have questions for the candidates, as I said, Maxine Bernier coming up at 1130, Michael Chon in just about an hour. Beyond the news at CFRA.com. We'll get to some of these. Uh, Greg writes in, Brian, I'm a conservative. My minimum requirement to vote conservative next time is to vote for a party that tells the truth about climate change, global warming, not to follow the new wave of religious environmentalism. The carbon tax and cap and trade ripoffs must stop. Kevin writes in about official languages. In my late father's years and mine in the military, the two official languages were English and profanity. <laughs> oh, when discussing liberals at all levels, I still find uh, I, I find the second still preferred. Wasn't expecting that. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll be chatting with Adrian Batcher in about uh, 20, 30 minutes' time on... What about St. Sophie? Are you praying for Sophie? 5 to 1 talk, 5 to 1 8 2 5 5. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. The liberals and their crazy policies. It's going to be interesting over the next little while. We're speaking with Elise Mills about what Michael Chong's bringing to this leadership race for the conservatives. And she pointed to the fact that he started out with policy. And that's great. Kelly Leach did such a soft launch. There was no media. Maxime Bernier did a scrum in the foyer, the building the conservatives are in. But there wasn't a huge talk of policy. And Chong's talking policy now. This comes at the same time as I've started going through the liberal policy resolutions for their upcoming convention. And unbelievably, I don't know who booked this. I don't know who decided this was a good idea. Maybe the conservatives don't want the media attention. I mean, I'm going. I wouldn't broadcast radio from the liberal convention if there was a conservative convention on. You're not interested unless it's to point out the silliness of some of it. But I'm going to the conservative one, the rebels going, but a big chunk of the media is going to be not in Vancouver with the nice weather, but they're going to be in Winterpeg, where it's still probably minus 31. Because the liberals are holding their convention at the same time. And so you're going to have this juxtaposition of policy that I think is just great. You're going to have people talking about how to restructure taxes, how to do real democratic reform so that it's, you know, I'm looking forward to talking to Michael Chong about this part real democratic reform so that it is not about the party, not about a list system or proportional representation or all these things that give more power to party brass and less party to you and local constituency associations. We're going to be talking about the differences in taxation, the differences in priorities. Can you imagine any sane person putting forward the idea that we have 62 official languages? I'm going to bet you 
that the person that put forward that policy proposal that said we add, in addition to English and French, that we add Aboriginal languages to Canada's list of official languages didn't realize there's 60 of them. Because how can you have 62 official languages? You just can't do it. But these are the liberal policy ideas. This is where the liberals live. This is their wheelhouse. It, it, it's grand thoughts. It's grand experiments. And it's detached from reality. I'm, just, I'm still trying to figure out how you would fit enough simultaneous translators into Parliament or the committee rooms for 62 official languages. And then, I don't know about you, but my bank, they've got the list of languages that you can be served in at the front. And sometimes that's an extensive list. There's no way. It can't be done. But if this policy were to pass and the Liberal government were to adopt it, then I can honestly see that happening. This is the natural extension of that idea. Is that you've got to have 62 different languages, every news release, every government website translated into each of those languages. It's unworkable. But that doesn't mean they won't push forward with it. It's going to be fascinating watching the conservatives come up with new and fresh ideas and compare them to the pie in the sky of the liberals. Department of Peace. Oh, and sugar is a toxic substance. Pot? Pot's great. But, but sugar? No. That's bad. They actually have a policy calling for sugar to be declared toxic. The party that wants to legalize pot wants sugar declared a toxic substance. So just follow me down this path a little bit. You end up legalizing pot. You've got, I don't know, more people smoking pot, the same number of people smoking pot, but you've declared sugar a toxic substance. So Billy goes out and smokes up, then he gets the munchies. Is he going to ingest toxic substances? And if so, will he then be lectured by the government? It's a little bit nutty. Now, speaking of nutty, Catherine McKenna is someone that I have a lot of respect for. She is not one of the ones that is making me look at, I disagree with her politics and I disagree with her policies. But there are a number of cabinet ministers that you hear them speak, you listen to how they Watch how they handle themselves, and you just think, wow, wow, how did you get into cabinet? Who lost out on a good-paying job for you? That doesn't happen in my books with Catherine McKenna. But, like I said, we disagree on policy. This weekend, she was on the West Block with Tom Clark, and Tom likes to take politicians up in a plane. Tom keeps a a small two-seater plane out in the, I think it's in the West End. He he kits it out with GoPros and then takes politicians up and holds a conversation. You might remember the the infamous one with Justin Trudeau. He was asked, well, what kind of shampoo do you use? Um, ah. Catherine McKenna showed up with a carbon offset to present to Tom because she was going in a plane. She had to buy a carbon offset. Really? Really? Who paid for that? I'm betting we did. 
But she also went out on the weekend, Catherine McKenna, our esteemed environment minister, and said that climate change is sexist because it affects women more. Now, you can you can back the minister on her view of climate change. You can be with me and point to the United Nations saying we haven't had warming since 98. But either way, saying that climate change affects women more and that if you are not on board with that, that you're some kind of grouchy, grouchy um, individual who's part of a subset of the climate change denier movement, I'm sorry. I just don't believe that at all. Let's go to Elizabeth calling in about bilingualism. Uh, Elizabeth, it won't be bilingualism if we have this new policy. I don't know what the term is when you've got 62. I don't know either, but what I was thinking about was signs. Was what? uh, Signs, like uh, people have had uh, legal fights over putting French or English on signs outside their business, or and then there's all the street signs and stuff. So what are they going to do with all of that? Well, I mean, this would apply to federal government things. So, the, you know, I can imagine bridges, if you go across, even bridges in Quebec that are owned and operated by the federal government, uh, d- despite protestations by the government of Quebec, they will put up English and French and rotate through if there's a traffic problem or something motorists need to know. Can you imagine trying to cycle that through 62 languages or even take it down and say, well, no one speaks um, no one speaks Blackfoot out here, so we'll just go with Mohawk and Cree and a well, couple exactly. of other. You're going to be cycling through five, six different languages. I, I just... Somebody just thought, hey, here's a nice way to show the the First Nations that we want to reconcile. Uh And and I don't think they thought it through. Well, no. I mean, a lot of stuff would have to be replaced, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And and who knows, like you say, how many languages would they have to put on each one? I just thought of that because I I know that there was a fight somewhere uh, out in eastern Ontario about a sign in the building. uh, And it wasn't in both official languages or something like that. And. Um, and, and that went, it, that it might've been new... Russell Township. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah. Okay. So, so I'm thinking, you know, that, that came to mind and I thought, oh, geez, now how much is that going to cost? Oh, it, it's going to cost plenty. Let, let's hope they have some sense and vote it down. But my fear is that people will say, oh, we can't vote this down because that would be, that would be wrong. That'd be racist and mean to the first nation. So they'll put it through. And, yeah. And then hopefully they just have common sense at government and ignore it. But we'll see. We'll see what the, yeah. the insanity is in Winnipeg. Thanks for the call, Elizabeth. <laughs> okay, thanks. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Uh, last week, we had no end to the phone calls about uh, Sophie Antoinette. And people are still talking about it. The hashtag on Twitter is Pray for Sophie, and it has been burning up all weekend. If you haven't seen it yet, there's a piece. I'll post it on Facebook in the break, a piece by my rebel colleague, uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed, where she uh, compares her life to what's going on and says she, too, has a personal um, chef. It's called The Crockpot. Adrian Batra joins me now. She's the comment editor at Sun Media Newspapers. And uh, Adrian, how big? Uh, you how just big? Your, me. 
You just demoted me. I'm I, the editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief. I, I can't keep up with your titles over there. <laughs> Every time I turn around, somebody's got a new job. Editor-in-chief of the Toronto Sun, yes. That's right. Okay. Which, which is the, the best tabloid in Toronto. No, it's the best tabloid across the country. country. (laughs) (laughs) So how big is your team? You know, you you work, you've got a busy job, you've got kids at home, you've got a a husband that works, has a busy job. How big's your team? Oh, yeah, Brian, it's a team, uh, you know, of of just the masses of people that are arranging my schedule and dealing with the paper and dealing with my husband's schedule and, and my son's very busy, you know, social agenda. Yeah, there's a there's a team of three, and uh, that two of those include my husband and I. Now, of course, we do have help because we both work full time outside of the home, but that's it. So, uh, did, did, but but we pay for these things, right? I pay for the help that my husband and I have for our son out of my own pocket with the N- money that really? I earn. Ha- yeah, no. Is that amazing how that works, Brian. No. You know, I I think that this whole. Uh, situation is is really quite extraordinary. I mean, what I find quite quite disconcerting and troubling about her, Miss Gregoire's uh, Trudeau's whinging about all of this is this is a party. This is a couple that campaigns very publicly together on the whole notion that we understand the middle class. We understand your struggle. Yes, forget our silver spoon entitlement. We understand what what you're going through. Well. I, I don't know if something got lost in, in, in the interpretation of her, her, her uh, quote, but that's not in touch. That is as far as out of touch as you can get. And well, well all... I'll, I'll tell you where the misinterpretation is. It's in that the, the assertion that she only wants one more assistant. She actually said an equip, a team. A team. She needs a yeah. team. And, and, and my point last week was, okay, well, beyond the household manager, because there's someone who's a household manager for Rito Cottage, two housekeepers, the chef, the personal assistant, the two nannies, two nannies. the driver, the security yeah. detail, and the groundskeeper. Yeah. And people mm-hmm. say, well, you can't count the groundskeeper. I'm sorry. I have to cut my own lawn. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's It's really – I mean, there's a certain contingent on the left that are going to accuse – you and I, for example, of being mean-spirited and we're bullying. There was an editorial in the Toronto Star recently that said, you know, give her all the help she can, ha- she possibly needs. But let's just sort of dial this back and put this into perspective for a moment. The Prime Minister's spouse does not have an official role in this country. If Ms. Gregoire Trudeau is genuinely overwhelmed, say no. I mean, this is just their first year in office. If there is, If there is still... You know, an organization she feels genuinely compelled to help with her celebrity. Maybe she can go to their event next year. Maybe she goes to their event in year three. I mean, I, I'm perhaps that sounds too logical. You know, she wants to give and get her give so much of herself, and that's admirable. But I think that if we if we just put this, you know, bring this down, you know, to reality, you know, burst this bubble of of Trudeau euphoria that everybody seems to be in right now, and and if she just stepped back and look at the realities that so many millions of Canadian families and mothers and fathers are facing on a regular basis, you can't get more clueless or out of touch with, with what we're seeing with the yeah, Trudeau family right now. When you're a Trudashian, you don't have to live <laughs> in reality. And, and, and look, I know Heather Malik says that because I criticize this, I hate women. And apparently the dozens of women callers that I had on Friday on this issue also hate women. Mm-hmm. But... It goes beyond this. I mean, the, the 
the uh, taxpayer-funded vacation to Fogo Island, where it's $2,000 a night, just, what, a, a month or two after they'd gone to a, an exclusive resort in St. Kitts, and in between they'd gone uh, snowboarding in Whistler, and they're having, they don't like the water at the house they've moved into, and so we, the taxpayers, have been providing gla- uh, water in glass bottles. Glass bottles, Adrian, because Justin Trudeau will not drink water out of a plastic bottle because it's wrong and environmentally bad. I mean, his carbon gigantic footprint that he preaches the rest of us about, that's good, I guess. I mean, I think think people are cluing in that there's more to it than just she wants an assistant. She wants a team, but she wants us to pay for this incredible lifestyle above and beyond what any prime minister's had before. Yeah, I, I don't think it's quite to the level yet of Ava Perone or uh, or uh, Melda Marcos, but it's, no. it's that it's that sort of whole notion of entitlement. You know, but, remember the David Dingwall were entitled to our entitlements. I mean, I guess liberals never really let that go. And well, let me compare it to a, a, another Montrealer, Mila Mulrooney. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone says, well, they, she had three assistants, but the Mulroonies were taken a task for being out of touch. Brian Mulroonies, Gucci loafers, all of that. You know, being out of touch with ordinary Canadians but demanding we pay for things, it, that'll do you in. Well, it, it absolutely can. I don't know if it will in this instance, Brian, because we the, the pendulum has sunk, swung so far the other way that people are – I think there's many Canadians that are just so happy without, you know, Stephen Harper being at the head of our country that they are prepared to overlook and, and be quite forgiving of anything that the Trudeaus decide that they want to do. But I think perhaps what's, what's more troublesome, even if I just sort of step away from the, the, the nonsense of what, what she said, was this: her husband's government has decided to make the lives of middle-class Canadians more difficult, you know, with respect to the child tax benefits and, and you know, the income splitting. And then on top of that, being prepared to implement more taxes in the form of cap-and-trade or a carbon tax or whatever you want to call it. They are going to make the the lives of the middle class more difficult and for lower income Canadians. So that to me is perhaps one of the more egregious aspects of this is just, you know, we can say you're out of touch. You can say you live, your head is in the clouds, but this is like the reality for millions of Canadians every day that their disposable income is being eroded day after day by her husband's government, um, by various policy decisions. While she sits in, you know, at the cottage while 24 Sussex gets re- renovated. And I think that there is an argument, of course, for that to be renovated. But step down upon a fear pedestal for just a moment, because I think many Canadians, women in particular, would like at least one person living in 24 Sussex who appreciates what they're going through. Uh, Adrian Batra, Editor-in-Chief of the Toronto Sun. Thanks, my friend. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having Chat me. Chat soon. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. I will need you, you conservatives, supporters in every city. What I want to offer is a limited government, a government that will respect taxpayers, that will respect future generation. That was Maxime Bernier in the Beauce yesterday. His home riding stomping grounds... Doing an official campaign launch, he joins me now on the phone here in Ottawa, here in the nation's capital. Maxime, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. I'm very pleased to be with you. We want to ask you, you, you announced back in March 
wasn't it? Yes, yes. And, and, I, and now you're launching? Yeah, I was. I announced in March, and I want to do something in my writing to speak with my people in both and to speak to Canadians about what will be my platform. And that's what I did with a thousand people in both. I was very happy with the crowd, very happy with the support. And I, I told my people from my writing that uh, they won't see me uh, uh, a lot during the, the next during this year's because this year because I will have to travel across the country and meet other uh, conservatives and being sure to be able to win. Now you have been speaking across uh, different parts of the country. You were in um, uh, Barrie, Ontario, a little while ago. You were speaking at the the Manning Conference. You've gone elsewhere, trying to spread your message. Yes, and I will be uh, tonight actually in Calgary. Uh, we'll, be, we'll do a fundraising over there. After that, uh, this Wednesday, I'll be in Toronto. So I'm uh, one good person in campaigning, and I have uh, my team is ready. Uh, my website is ready. Uh, we have four teams, very important for me, like, uh, like I said in the past, freedom, responsibility, uh, fairness, and respect. And all our policies will be based on that. And actually, the next one will be in June, on June the 6th in Toronto on uh, the telecom for the telecom industry. Uh, telecommunication okay, well, is a, an important industry. Let, let's expand on yes. those themes a little bit. Let, let's pretend that you, you and I meet up at the Vancouver Convention, and we will meet up at the Vancouver Convention, but let's say I'm a delegate. Yeah. You're not talking to Brian in the media. You're talking to, to Bob the delegate in the elevator. <laughs> yes. What's your elevator pitch to people who are party members or might be interested, but they're not sure where to go? I'm a true conservative who believe in freedom and want a freer and a more prosperous country. Look at what I said and did in the past, and I want to do the same thing. And I, I, a guy who believes in, in people, and I don't believe in a big, fat government that will tell you what to do with your life. I want to have a balanced budget. I want to lower taxes for all Canadians. Uh, I want to have policies that will be uh, uh, fair for everybody. I don't want uh, us to do like uh, the, the Trudeau government is doing right now. It is unfair for the future generation. They will have to pay these uh, huge deficit, but they don't receive any benefit from that because it's all spending on programs and only one-third on infrastructure. Uh, so, so if you want somebody who is a, a real conservative and a principal politician and an authentic politician, it is me. And if you want a politician who will try to please every uh, special interest group, don't vote for me, and I don't want vo your vote. <laughs> but that, that's pretty blunt. Yeah. I, I want to read part of the speech you gave at the Conservative Futures Conference and then ask you to expand on it. You said, many Canadians are dissatisfied with their lot. They see unfairness everywhere. They think the 1% have it too good at the expense of the poor and middle class. They resent the power of big business. They think their region or province is not getting its fair share. They have a point, but they're wrong when they blame the rich and capitalism for all this unfairness. Go from there. Yeah, who's to blame is socialism and crony capitalism. Uh, like uh, the example like Bombardier, why the government won't give money to a big corporation like that, like uh, all the entrepreneurs from Barrie, Ontario, or, or for both in, from both in my writing, how come they are obliged to pay taxes to fund the business like Bombardier or another business like GM? So that's unfair. And I think people, they blame, uh, they blame the system, but that's not uh, the capitalism system. That's uh, crony capitalism, it, that's it, socialism. Crony capitalism is not really free enterprise. 
Yeah, you're right. It is not free market. It is not free enterprise. So uh, I, I'm not working for a special interest group. I'm working for Canadians. And uh, that's that's why I'm in politics for the last 10 years. And I want to do that uh, the day that uh, uh, people won't like what I'm seeing. I won't change. I will just go back to the private sector. But actually, I think I have a good support in Quebec and outside Quebec for uh, strong uh, uh, candidates who believe in free markets. One of your competitors, Michael Chong, came out today uh, and he started talking policy right away. Um, He said, you know, we tax people too much at the income tax level. Let's move away from income tax towards a consumption tax. That used to be a conservative policy, but people hate the GST so much that Stephen Harper won a lot of political support by cutting it. Where do you stand on, on how to fix the tax system? Yeah, I will have a, a big proposal on that in September. And uh, I think that, yes, people are paying too much income tax. I think an income tax, it's, it's unfair. I said that in my speech uh, uh, yesterday in Bose, that people are paying our, our taxes uh, uh, 40%. Two percent of their of their uh, earning are taxed by different levels of government, and it's too much. And the, 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 as you know, the uh, the Freedom Day, uh, it's uh, the Fraser Institute every year. They they are telling us that it's at the end of June, and so we are working at, at almost six months every year to pay all taxes from different uh, government of governments of uh, level of governments, like the provincial, the federal, the municipal one. And I think at the federal level, we must. Uh, we must do our part and lower, uh, yes, uh, uh, income tax, and, and uh, but doing that at the same time to unleash the economy and unleash the private sector, signing free trade agreements, uh, lowering tax for business, for people, uh, having policy that will bring competition. Uh, you know, we have some, we have in a lot of sector, like in telecom sector, uh, uh, we forbid foreign investment in Canada. Foreign investment, it is good for, for, for the economy. So we must uh, change a lot of policies to uh, let the private sector to create the, the wealth in this country. And that's all together. That will be all together with my proposal on, on the tax system. And as, no, as you know, I wrote a book on the flat tax. Uh, I believe in a, in, a, in a tax system that will be uh, uh, fair, that will be, simple, uh, sim- uh, will be easy to, to understand. And if you can do your tax report in one page, that would be good. Oh, so, I love that. So, and, and, and you know what we did in the past, we were, uh, I will use the word buying votes by giving a lot of credits for family, for sport, for kids in sport and all that. I don't believe in that. I think we must be fair for everybody and cutting all that. Let let, let me ask you then, because Canadians have long, or conservatives have long believed in a simpler tax system. Stephen Harper ran on it. Previous conservative parties ran on it. And you know what happened? Canadians said, oh, but I don't know. That sounds good. But these guys, they're going to give me stuff. It's hard to argue against Santa Claus. And I think that's why, you know, under Stephen Harper, they moved towards the boutique tax credits. How do you sell Canadians on the idea of doing away with uh, what these little tangible benefits they can see in favor of the, the less tangible will cut your taxes overall? 
but they must they, every Canadians must see a benefit in in the in lower taxes uh, income tax and they must see a benefit so so like that I think they will they will uh, they will be happy with that and they they will uh, vote for it uh, like in Hong Kong uh, in Hong Kong they have one flat tax and uh, the way to bring a flat tax in Hong Kong what they did a couple of years ago they they give the people a freedom of choice they said we have two systems one with a lot of deduction and, and, and a lot of uh, privilege from special interest group and another one uh, that will be a flat tax and you can choose your your tax system and the population I think at that time 80% of people they did they, they choose a flat tax and two <laughs> years later they decided to, they decided to abolish uh, the, the the old tax system and now in Hong Kong you have a very simple one a flat tax so it's a, it's a it's a way to uh, to uh, to maybe achieve our goal but um, I will uh, I will look at all that actually I'm doing that right now with uh, some of my friends economists to be sure also to balance the budget it's easy to say we, we will cut uh, taxes and but I don't want any deficit I I signed a, a, a pledge with the, the the young generation in Quebec City two weeks ago and my uh, my uh, uh, what I told them, I said I will uh, I will balance the budget in two years because maybe the first year it can be difficult because we'll have a lot of deficit and programs and things like that. But the next year of uh, the second year of a conservative government, it must be a balanced budget. Uh, so so there's a lot of things to do, and the campaign would be would be long. That will give uh, me and other candidates time to have proposal. And yes, when I'll come with the taxation proposal, it will be a detailed one uh, like a budget. And everybody will understand what's uh, what's happening. All right. Well, uh, Maxime, uh, you know that uh, there's a lot of conservatives listen to this show. A lot of conservatives listen to this radio station. So, you're welcome back anytime. You and and the other candidates. Happy to hear from you. Where can people find out more about you if you've piqued their interest? <laughs> I really appreciate Brian. Thank, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Uh, where can they find out more? What's your website? MaximBernie.com. It's a website that is bilingual, uh, and they can join me over there. And all my speeches are on the website, and uh, they can be member of the party. They can donate, and uh, I would be pleased uh, if they can write to me also. So uh, they just don't. <laughs> I want them don't hesitate to be part of that, and they can give me a good uh, comments or, or 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 comments that they think that is important for them. I'm reading everything, so for. For me, the website is part of the campaign. It's an important one to reach a lot of Canadians. It's MaximeBurney.com. All right, and uh, we will see you. If I don't see you before Vancouver in the convention, we'll see you there and hopefully uh, grab you for a bit of time then. Thanks. (laughs) I would appreciate that. Thank you, Brian. Maxime Bernier, now Conservative Leadership Candidate, MP for the Beauce in Quebec. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back with your calls in moments. Brian Lilly, News Talk 580 CFRA. Michael Chon coming up just after 12 o'clock. We'll pop in and out with your phone calls throughout the show. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Albert calling in from Thunder Bay about languages. Uh, do you like the idea of 62 official languages, Albert? Oh, I just love it. Did it ever occur to anybody that that uh, many of these languages don't have a written component? I'm pretty sure most do by now. I'm pretty sure. 
Well, yes, but but it's a, it's a, it's it's a symbol type of system. It's it's not. No, really... no, no. I, I'm pretty sure there's books. I think you're looking back on where it was. I believe that there's a written language for the the sixty that we have. I mean, even even if they all had them, even if none of them have them, is it feasible at all to have sixty two official languages? <laughs> not really. Okay. <laughs> So what would you say to the liberals if they uh, came knocking at your at your door proposing that? Oh, I think I'd just laugh at them and, and, and close the door. <laughs> you have a, Quickly, do you have a question for Michael Chon coming up? Uh, not at the moment, I don't know. Okay, well, I, people can email me, beyondthenews at cfra.com. Thanks for the chat, Albert. All right. Let's go to uh, Doris calling in about Sophie from the prior. Hello. Hello. Hi, Doris. Yes. Your thoughts on Sophie? Uh, did uh, did it change that when you volunteer, it's your time you're using, and you don't get paid for it, or you <laughs> well, hire somebody uh, to pay them to, so you could volunteer? If you remember, Doris, the Trudeaus have a different view of charity in that. Most people give to charity. Justin Trudeau takes from charity. Remember, he was charging yes, them ten to twenty thousand dollars. Yes, I'm a senior, so yeah, I remember all that stuff. <laughs> uh, but did we elect a queen? Uh, last I uh, checked, no. Uh, but isn't that the role that she's trying to play? I think a lot of people are taking it that way based on her attitude. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder, you know, how uh, our, I can't say my prime minister because he's not, and he never will be, but is it not them sitting and smoking these damn weeds at night and trying to decide which way Canada's going to go and what we're going to pay for and we're going to be broke and we should be like the Western countries because we have it so good? I, uh, I I don't know how they come up with these decisions. I think it's a little tone deaf, and no matter how many how many out of touch elitist folks in the media turn around and defend her, I don't think it's um, going to help the average Canadian see this as anything other than um, being a spoiled brat. Yeah, well, that generation is. Well, hold on a minute. I'm this. I'm the same age as Justin Trudeau, and I don't think I'm a spoiled brat. Uh, well, your parents were smart. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Doris. Okay. Let's go to Gloria in Ottawa calling in about Catherine McKenna. Yes, I just want to see if, if there's a question you could possibly ask uh, um, um, Michael Chong. Um, will he bring in recall legislation? Because I think we really need it. It's overdue. I think you know, he, he talks it. a lot about democratic reform. I will ask him about that. Okay. All right. No, it's just that, you know, uh, I mean, it's time for the opposition really to demand that Catherine McKenna give us proof of her data and her numbers on climate change, because all she does is continue her campaign of fear on, on, on our climate with nothing to back it up. Never. And, and you know, you've quoted this many times. The, the factual numbers from the U.N. on our carbon output is 1.6 percent, or it's, it's so small it's almost impossible to measure it. And there's been no global warming since 1998. 
Well, that, well, hold on. You can't go quoting the United Nations Intergovernmental <laughs> Panel on Climate Change, Gloria. And they have over, I, I, I'm sure they have over 100 uh, uh, scientists there, you know, before, before this, uh, their, their numbers come out. And well, <laughs> that's just proof, you know, positive. You don't, but, ha- you don't have to worry about Catherine McKenna because Kathleen Wynne is coming out with a new plan, mm-hmm. and I think details are out today. And we'll get into that on, um, it's going to cost us billions. Gloria, <laughs> thanks for the call. Thank you. I'm Brian Lilly. I'm hitting the, the wrong button. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. When we come back, Michael Chong, he kicked off his campaign for conservative leadership this morning. We'll see what he has to say to us. I don't know. Is Fifth Harmony really a a guilty pleasure? Maybe. Song just makes me want to dance. I want to dance. Uh, We'll talk politics instead. Michael John joins me on the line, and uh, he kicked off his leadership uh, bid this morning. Michael, I I don't know what to make of this. The fact that you're born 1971, Justin Trudeau is. Is it a sign that I'm getting old that the political leaders are the same age as me? I think that's a good sign. The sign that a new generation is taking up the helms of leadership. You started off, uh, I'm going to ask you for your elevator pitch for why you should be leader in a moment. But you started off talking about your uh, family story. Like my family, your parents are immigrants, but unlike mine, they came from two various, very different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Give us the quick version. Well, my father was a Chinese immigrant from Hong Kong, and my mother was a Dutch immigrant from the Netherlands. So one was from Asia, and the other one was from Europe. Um, but the thing that the thing that really united the two was the fact that Canadian soldiers defended uh, my father's family and liberated my mother's family during the Second World War. Um, it was the Battle of Hong Kong uh, that my father witnessed when the Royal Rifles of Canada and the Winnipeg Grenadiers um, were. Uh, slaughtered in a vicious assault yep. um, during that battle, and my dad witnessed that, and he never forgot the sacrifice of those soldiers. And on my mother's side of the family, her family was liberated by Canadian soldiers um, during the liberation of the Netherlands, and that's something the Dutch have never forgotten. So my family owes a great deal uh, to the generation of Canadians who came before and who gave everything uh, so that me and my family could live. So now you want to give back. Let's pretend, and I, I put this question to Maxime Bernier earlier, we're at, we meet up in, in uh, Vancouver at the convention, mm-hmm. and I'm not Brian the media guy. I'm Bob the delegate. Mm-hmm. Give Bob the delegate your elevator pitch on why Michael Chong should be leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Well, quite simply for two reasons. The first is that we need to attract new people to this party, not just during the leadership race, but in the next election. And that begins by better telling our story, um, our story of who we are as conservatives. That's why I've been telling my story about my family's immigration to this country. Um, And secondly, I believe it also begins by attracting new people by putting forward ambitious new policies based on conservative principles. So things like reform of our personal and corporate income tax systems so that we have a flatter, simpler, and a fairer and lower uh, personal and corporate income tax system. It it's about putting forward policies on environmental issues that reflect our proud tradition on conservation and on protecting the environment. And finally, it's about democratic renewal. We need to reform the House of Commons and the Senate uh, to make sure that the people's voice is always heard front and center. And so we put forward those policies. If we articulate those principles, 
Um, and if we tell our story, I think we'll attract new people during the campaign, but also in the next election. Okay, I, I, I want to get into democratic reform with you because we, we've debated it, we've talked about mm-hmm. it, we've also debated it because I've, I've liked some parts of your reform bill, not other parts, but it's far better than what the government's putting up. But l- let me pick up on what you said about conservation. Mm-hmm. It's true that conservatives have done more for conservation of land and parkland in this country than anybody else. That's right. But it, you do not get credit for it, and you could turn around tomorrow and invoke everything that the uh, far-left environmental movement wants, and you still wouldn't get credit for it. Mm-hmm. So how how does that translate into votes or at least deadening the attacks to put this idea forward? Because it, it seems like shorthand for the radical environmental movement, but also many in the media, that conservatives hate the environment. Mm-hmm. It's emphatically not true. It wasn't true of the last government. It wasn't true of previous conservative governments. Mm-hmm. But how do you break through on that? Well, I think all the good work we did on conservation over the last 10 years was drowned out by our position on the issue of climate change. I think we as conservatives need to acknowledge that carbon pricing is here and it's coming to a much greater extent. Where we, What we need to do is establish a clear position on that uh, pricing of carbon. And where I differ from the Liberals is that I believe strongly that those revenues should be used to cut personal and corporate income taxes. Um, Liberal governments in this country at the provincial level and at the federal level um, and in the province of Alberta, um, NDP government there, are using those revenues to fund programs. And I think that's the wrong approach. If we fund programs using those revenues, it becomes the pricing of carbon becomes nothing short of a of a tax grab. But if we use the revenues to cut income taxes, we actually achieve a second result. In addition to reducing emissions, we'll achieve um, a reduction in personal income taxes and in business taxes, which will spur job creation and economic growth. Uh, when Patrick Brown promised to, carbon, uh, to put a price on carbon, we polled on that, and 82% of PC voters in Ontario said they disagreed with their party leader. I, had se- I asked the, the audience, what, would, what do you want me to ask these guys? And mm-hmm. several people said, I won't vote for someone that brings in a carbon tax. Well, it's not a question of whether or not a government will bring in a carbon tax. They've already arrived, these taxes. Um, The province of British Columbia already has a carbon tax. The government of Alberta already has a carbon tax. And the province of Ontario and the province of Quebec are introducing, are in the process of introducing a cap-and-trade system. So the pricing of carbon is already here in Canada. The question is what to do with the revenues. And it's no small question because these revenues are going to be in the billions of dollars. My view strongly is they need to be used to cut taxes. They should not be used, not a cent of it should be used on government programs. We have enough government revenue. We cannot make carbon pricing uh, into a tax grab. We have to use those revenues to cut personal income taxes. Now, I. I unfortunately, I, I saw you walking in mm-hmm. uh, this morning. We bumped into each other on Wellington Street as you were walking down the street with your lovely family and the gorgeous kids, by the way. Congratulations Thanks. to you and your wife. Uh, they, uh, but I, I couldn't stick around. I had to come down here for the the radio show. Somebody said to me that you had announced uh, not cutting personal income taxes off of uh, carbon taxes, but off of uh, consumption taxes. Are they one and the same, or are you talking about raising the HST? I'm not talking about raising HST. Um, What I'm referring to is a shift from income taxes to consumption taxes. A price on carbon is, in effect, a type of consumption tax. So that's what I'm referring to when I talk about a shift from income taxes to consumption taxes. 
I have um, uh, talked on the air extensively, with, including with people that have long histories in, in both preceding parties, about the fact that I, I think this whole red Tory, blue Tory thing is overblown. But that's one of the knocks against you. I, mm. I think it's over-exaggerated. I, I think that uh, the, the so-called divisions inside the Conservative Party are often media creations that, to have a storyline. But, but one one of the knocks against you is Michael John's just a red Tory. I'm 100% with you on this, Brian. I think those old divisions are are gone. And I'll tell you why. It's not just gone within the Conservative Party. I think the old classification, if I can use that word, between left and right and center, not just in Canada, but south of the border, is doesn't make sense anymore. You know, if we look at uh, the candidates for the Republican and Democratic leadership races south of the border, you know, the way you'd hear some of the policies coming out of Donald Trump, you'd think he's a Democrat. And conversely, well, some of the policies, I might say he is. <laughs> yeah. You, and some of the policies you hear coming out of the other candidates, you might think that they're Republicans. So I think that old uh, system of classifying people is, is doesn't make sense anymore. You know, the Conservative Party is a united party. Um, those old divisions from the two predecessor parties are gone. I think really what this upcoming leadership campaign will be all about is a debate on issues, a debate on environmental issues, a debate on democratic reform, a debate on economic reforms that will achieve job creation and economic growth. You talked about, um, you emphasized, in fact, uh, smaller government, free trade, lower taxes. Absolutely. Why? Because I believe those policies are the, are the way forward for prosperity in this country. These were the policies that were introduced by governments in North America and in Europe in the 1980s. They were difficult policies to introduce at the time, but they have created millions of new jobs. You know, between Confederation and uh, 1990, Canada's economy grew to about $900 billion. In the last 25 years alone, it has grown to more than double that size, to $2 trillion. And it has created, we've had 4.9 million new jobs created in this country since the introduction of the free trade agreement. At a time when the population was growing. At a time the population is growing, but not nearly to reflect that huge increase in economic output and job creation. So I believe lower taxes, um, harnessing the power of free markets, harnessing the power of uh, free trade, is the way to go for the future of this country. And, you know, some people, they cr- criticize those policies. Um, they think that they're, they're no longer relevant in 2016. I strongly disagree. I think we have to double down on our efforts to constantly expand trade, to lower taxes, and to ensure that, you know, we have a competitive economy. We live in a globalized uh, economic environment where things move very right. quickly, and we need to leverage that. And if we do that... We will become even more prosperous. The issue of democratic reform, uh, the current minister in charge of that file says we need to get rid of our old, our current voting system because, well, it comes from the eight, uh, 19th century. I'd hate to hear what she thinks about the Magna Carta, for goodness sakes. But where do you stand? Uh, are, do we need to get rid of first past the post? Or what I like about your proposals are deadening the uh, the power of the central party operatives. Well, I, the, the way I see these other guys going, we're going to have more power in the hands of party operatives with proportional rep and everything else. Absolutely, Brian. I, I strongly disagree with the government's approach. The, the current government has said that they would like to see a preferential ballot. 
That will, in fact, make the problem in Ottawa worse. And here's why. Many people who argue in favor of electoral reform do so on the basis of the following argument, that parties with less than 50% of the popular vote win a majority of seats in the House of Commons. So in other words, on October 19th, the Liberals won uh, 39% of the popular vote, but they won a majority of the seats in the House of Commons, some 180 seats out of 338 seats. On their favored system, which is the preferential ballot, they would exacerbate the problem. They'd make the problem even worse because on a preferential ballot last October 19th, the Liberals would have won some 230 seats. So they actually would make the problem worse. You know, the real problem in Ottawa is this. It's not the way in which we elect members of parliament. It's what happens to those MPs when they arrive in Ottawa. They become under the, they go under the thumb of the PMO and the party leaders. Regardless of who's in power. That's right. And so that's why we, the, the fundamental problem is the power of the PMO and party leaders to control elected MPs. We need to rebalance that power um, by introducing further reforms to the House of Commons and Senate. All right, Michael Chong, thanks so much. His website is chong.ca if you want to find out more. Thanks for having me, Brian. And hopefully we can chat when, uh, when we're in Vancouver and you've got an open invite here uh, throughout the campaign. Thanks so much. Thanks. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Drop me a note. Let me know what you think. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at facebook.com slash 580CFRA. So where do you stand? Where do you stand on what you've heard from the leadership contenders so far? Beyond the News at CFRA. Dot com Beyond the news at CFRA.com. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think. Tomorrow, of course, we'll be speaking with Kelly Leach. So far, only three declared candidates and a whole pile waiting in the wings. Do you like what you hear? Do you want to hear more? Do you care? Are you involved in the conservative leadership? You can also call in 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. How do you feel about how the leadership race is shaping up? James is calling in about taxes. James, you're on the program. Um, why the conservatives cannot go bold as the liberals? I, 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 why can't they what? Why can't they go go brave, brave and bold with their policies, just like the liberals? Although well, the liberals, the liberals' policy is bogus and selfish, but they still go bold and brave, and this is the reason why people gravitate towards towards the policy because you're not pussyfooting around, you see? I, I understand what you're saying. Well, I, my late, I, I do think, though, if you... Did you hear Maxime Bernier and Michael Chon on? Yes, but um, I'm, um, I still... I still I, my main point, I, have, I still have to come up with the main point. Um, why can't they abolish the payroll taxes and raise the GST? For instance, Apart from, apart from the, my main job, I was doing other jobs to boost my income, and I am being punished for it. I'm being punished. Oh, I hear you. I hear you, James. I'm being punished, and, and hence the reason I had to leave it, because every year I, I, I end up owing the government um, $1,400, so I had to quit. So they are punishing the citizens 
for being too ambitious. You know? and, and by abol abolishing the payroll taxes, they're going to achieve even more, and, and, and they're going to kill several birds with, with one stone. For instance, these filthy rich people who put in their money in safe heaven to avoid, avoid paying taxes, if they, if they abolish the payroll taxes, and 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 put uh, and, and and like raise the raise the GST, and so every time you go and shop, you pay you pay your taxes. And I and, I, and, I would be happy with that, James. I just don't and, think most Canadians understand that, and, and, and they they see it as uh, as an affront to them. And they, so nobody will be able to evade taxes because you have to shop. You have to shop, even even though you put even though you put your money in the street, in the overseas bank, and and you're residing in Canada, you have to shop in Canada, so you cannot you cannot evade taxes. All right, this is true, James. You're breaking up, so we'll put you on hold. Thanks for the call. But in some very good points, but are Canadians willing to get behind a consumption tax instead of a uh, payroll tax instead of your income tax? Are they ready to get behind a? A, a whole tax on carbon instead of a payroll tax. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Seems like the leadership edition. Join the conversation now. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So Kathleen Wynne is now trying to downplay or deny or distance herself from reports that the government will be spending billions of dollars on their climate change plan. A climate change plan that will try and get all of us out of the regular cars, the ones built here in Ontario that support the jobs, that support the taxes, that support the government that she leads, and into electric cars, which are not made here, except for one hybrid, which starts at $68,000. They're trying to deny it, even though they are investing heavily already. We know they're investing heavily in electric cars. We know they're pushing that. And Glenn Murray is out there making public statements about getting us all off of using natural gas to heat our homes. I thought that was the clean alternative for so many years. Use natural gas. It's clean. It's efficient. It works great. Now we've got to get off of that. I don't believe them when they say that the reports are false. In fact, I, I fear that the reports are 100% accurate. This is a government that is not based in reality, because if they were, they would have given up on the issue of the Green Energy Act. They would have stopped trying to build even more, even more solar and wind power. I, we've been through this, I don't know how many times, myself or Lowell Green or Rob Snow. The fact that despite the investments, Wind and solar provides very little of the energy that we consume here in Ontario, and yet we continue to build more of it. They're about to be putting up new wind farms in here in eastern Ontario, in the Nation Township, down in uh, South Dundas. They're going to be building huge out towards London. Let's see. What's the output right now? Wind is 8%. 
8% of our total. Solar, 1.6%. Nuclear, which they also want to get us off of, is 50%. Hydro, 33%. Natural gas, 6.1%. But they're going to keep investing more and more. They've invested untold sums, and the best they come up with is 8% from wind. We're going to replace the nuclear plants, apparently, with more windmills. This is Kathleen Wynne's grand plan. More windmills, electric cars, getting rid of natural gas to heat your home, and spending billions of dollars from you to accomplish her dreams. Love to hear your thoughts on that. 521-TALK, 521-8255, or star 580 on Bell Mobility. And if you're out of town, it's 1-800-580-CFRA. I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the conservative leadership. You've heard two people already. They're somewhat different. In some areas, they overlap, and that only makes sense. They're both running for leadership at the same party. I was impressed with Michael Chon on issues such as smaller government, greater personal freedom. He knows that I disagree with him on an issue like a, a carbon tax. But where do you stand on all of this? Do you like what you're hearing from either one of them? Do you like what you're hearing from Maxime Bernier? Do you like what you're hearing from Michael Chong? And then, of course, tomorrow we'll hear from Kelly Leach. There's still to be heard from on whether they're going to jump into the race. Tony Clement, Lisa Raitt, Jason Kenney, Peter McKay. I know I'm probably missing about four more. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, I think, is considering it. He's been at it around in, at some events. In fact, I saw him this weekend at the Canadian Shooting Sports Association dinner. Yeah, I thought that was the weekend before. No, it was this weekend. But Aaron O'Toole was there, saw Chris Alexander, uh, former immigration minister. May take another run of politics down the line. I don't think he's jumping in on leader, but you know, I think Aaron O'Toole might be thinking about it. Where do you stand on the conservative leadership? What ideas do you want to hear? What do you like about what you've seen? You can call 521-TALK, 521-8255, or email me, beyondthenews, at cfra.com. Campbell writes in, or sorry, Chris writes in, about James. James spoke of the liberal platform that got them elected and how conservatives could do their own version. The only problem with that idea, the liberals never thought they could win, so they promised the sun. Well, that's true, and the liberals also won because they... Um, well, they benefited from the collapse of the NDP in an organized Unite the Left movement. 521 Talk, 521-8255. David in Ottawa calling in. Yeah, okay, I'm on a quick one, a few notes. One about the possible re, uh, lowering the election each to 16. Bullfeather that, says... That, well, that, no, that's no, the liberal idea. Yeah. Let's just make clear. That's a liberal I, I idea, not that, the conservatives. Yeah. As as Lowe would say, bullfeathers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you stole my thunder about the, the uh, changing of uh, household heating from natural gas. Uh, besides the fact that the increased cost of the energy, I mean, they're going to drive people out of their homes. But I got another question. Who is going to pay to come in and rip out all the ducting? Well, they can leave that there. It's not going to hurt anyone. But who's going to come in and pay to put in all new wiring and the, the hardware to, 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 to electrically heat my home? I don't have baseboard heaters and stuff here right now. Well, I, I don't know what they want us to heat with. 
Because remember, in the 70s, there, there was a push to uh, electric heat and baseboard heat. And that ended up people in Ontario got rid of it because it cost too much. It's, it's not that uncommon in Quebec. Well, the same, because the prices are lower. The same thing happened in Newfoundland back in the 70s when uh, hydro was going to be all the thing in the Churchill Falls, which Quebec stole from us anyway. And and uh, people went to electric, and it, it was the worst thing they'd ever done. But uh, I was going to go into this, this diatribe of how I fell on the floor and banged my head and was bleeding madly. I was going to ride to the hospital on my bicycle because I couldn't afford a car when I heard the news of the... Uh, change over from hydro, but I was going to be very uh, facetious about that, but you stole a lot of the thunder. But gosh, besides the cost of the darn stuff, who's going to re- rejig every home in the province to that? My gosh. Well, that's part of uh, the, the green economy, I guess. Uh, you, you quickly wanted to make a point about Henry Burke. I did. I was listening uh, over the past little while, his public service announcements on behalf of uh, uh, women, uh, his work with uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and mm-hmm. the golf tournament today. And I was just got thinking, that man doesn't have his citizenship yet. What is wrong with the Canadian government? We're, we're, re- we're returning citizenship to terrorists, and we don't think Henry Burris is good enough. What's wrong with them? Very good question. I should have asked Chris Alexander about that on the weekend when I saw him. Uh, I know he had started looking into that towards the end of the government's time. I don't know what happened there. But this is a guy that should be a citizenship. If I was a younger man with a family, I would be so proud to have him in my neighborhood. I'd be happy to see my kids go to his place and and play with his kids and and that kind of stuff. I'd I'd be wonderfully happy to go to a PTA meeting and sit beside that man. Well, I, I haven't met him uh, too often. We've crossed paths a couple of times. Seems like a fine guy to me. Thanks for the call, does. David. Let's go to Anne calling in from Ottawa about the Ontario Liberals. Oh, my God. I, you know what? I have so many marks on my wall from every time I read something stupid that they're going to be doing that's going to further hurt our economy and, and impoverish us which is not good for the economy, and it's not good for us either, because then we don't have any money to buy food or pay to heat our houses or everything. There's so many people that within the last 10 years have changed their furnaces and got the, the more efficient gas furnaces. I'm one of them. I got my furnace changed probably about five years ago. Oh, well, now you got to get rid of it because um, Glenn Murray says we shouldn't heat with natural gas. I mean, that guy is a certifiable wackadoodle. There is no other way to describe it. How how in the name of all that's holy is any of this going to be good for the economy? It's going to ruin the real estate market because anybody who's got a, a not new home that, you know, like everything they do is so crazy. Like it's going to discourage all business from coming into this province. Like it, they're already, they've already done that. And who the heck with what we're paying for See, I'm beside myself with what we're paying for hydro already. In the name of God, who would want to have electric heat? <laughs> My God. You know, if you've got like a 2,000-square-foot home and you have to heat it by electricity, I mean, gas is, is almost the cheapest thing you can be heating with right now. It's just crazy, but I could almost see it coming. If you don't change your furnace, they'll use a big stick. If you don't pay to change your furnace, we're going to charge you through the nose for the gas. You know, like, 
we have to get rid of this government. I just wish more people oh, would wake up. I think we've just got to survive this government. And thanks for the call. Okay, bye. When we come back, we will get to more of your calls, absolutely. But uh, my friend David Martosco follows the American political scene for the Daily Mail. He'll be joining us quickly. And, and, and then back to your calls. But you know what? You want to be served breakfast by me? Have you heard of Food Aid Day? Thursday, June 2nd, down at, I believe it's City Hall. I'm going to get more details on this. I'm going to read the news release fully. But Food Aid Day's coming up. Guess what? You can get served breakfast by myself and others from both CFRA, uh, Country 94, Magic 100. Details coming up. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. On the news with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. He is the U.S. politics editor for what uh, might be the most read newspaper online in the English speaking world. David Martosco joins me now. Is that an accurate description, David? I think it is. Among newspapers, we have the, the most read English language newspaper website on the planet. About 230 million unique readers a month. Oh, wow. Take. Okay. I wouldn't mind those numbers. Uh, you you follow the campaigns. You've been out on the road with them. You drop in now and again, and you are based in Washington. You've done this for a long time. Let me ask you, have you ever seen a campaign uh, quite like this, or is this just standard? The Saturday New York Times comes out with a, a Donald Trump story, and the audience knows that I'm not a big Trump guy, but you end up defending him even because people just print garbage. This Times story, from what I'm reading, is makes it sound like he's trying to get a woman right after he meets her. You got to take off your clothes. Meanwhile, she says, no, he offered me a swimsuit at a pool party. Yeah, well, look, uh, this is look, this campaign is unusual for several reasons, um, but not the least of which is that Trump threatens the, the normal order of things on both the left and the right. And that's unusual. Uh, not only is he you know, threatening to bury the Democratic Party, you know, under under Hillary's nose, He's threatening to toss aside the normal way of doing things in the Republican Party, which is, you know, kind of a, a, a moderate, business-friendly, but, uh, but, you know, not terribly bold policy-wise approach to things. And he just wants to burn it all down. So everybody's angry at him, uh, with the exception of the, you know, 76 percent of Americans who don't hold college degrees and are trying desperately to decide week by week whether to fix the family car or pay for their kid's dentist visit. You know, those people tend to love him. And as long as a lot of them turn out, Trump will succeed in burning it all down. And so when you look at the, what the New York Times did, this is, I guarantee you this is being aided and abetted by Trump haters on both sides of the aisle. Uh, I've been speaking to some of the women that the Times spoke with and a few that who, who the Times offered interviews to but, but passed because it all sounded so fishy. Um, th- this, is, this has now become the new normal this year in terms of both sides of the aisle ganging up on Trump. It'll truly be amazing if he manages to withstand it. Um, I think it'll change the direction of American presidential politics forever. So from your discussions and the interviews that they've given elsewhere, um, let me just uh, I was just about to tweet out your article. But uh, the former girlfriend uh, that was uh, her name is uh, Rowan Brewer Land. Do you think that she was uh, that Trump was just that up front with her here? Take off your clothes minutes after he met her. Or do you think it was? Oh, you showed up at a pool party without a swimsuit. Let me help you with that. Yeah, no, I think it was definitely the latter. I mean, she's given two interviews now, one on Fox and one on CNN today, where she said, look, I was a model. I just finished a full day of photo shoots. 
I went right to this party because my agent asked me to, and he wanted me to meet people. And I didn't have a swimsuit, and I showed up, and it was a pool party. And Donald Trump came up to me and showed me the architecture of the building and showed me how nice it is. And he said, oh, do you want to swim? And I said, I don't have a suit. And he said, well, let's find you one. It's not like he stood there while she changed. She went to a bathroom and changed her clothes, for crying out loud. And then he came out and showed everybody, hey, this is the guest. Her name is so-and-so. Isn't she beautiful? And, you know, the way the time spun it, it was – and they literally used the word debasing. That's how they reported it. This was this debasing first encounter with Donald Trump, which is indicative in their mind of how Trump treats women. In her mind, in her own way, she said it was flattering. I was thrilled to be there. He was one of the world's richest people, and I was, I was like, really shocked that he was so nice and ordinary. So she came away, and in, in her telling, she told the Times this, and they promised her, look, we're not doing a hit piece. And then they came out with a hit piece, and now she's demanding an apology. All right. Well, I'm going to doubt that she gets one. Oh, let, yeah. let, let me throw uh, this at you before we're out of time. Sheldon Adelson, you said that the, uh, the establishment uh, on the Republican side, Trump wants to burn it down. She- Sheldon Adelson has spent a lot of money on the Republican establishment over the years. He is now coming out saying he endorses Trump because the alternative is frightening. I agree with him. Uh, And he's going to spend a lot of money to get Trump elected. Well, look, you have to understand that the Republican establishment who's going to run screaming from Trump aren't the hundred million dollar donors. Those people are what they're all are after what they're always after, which is control of the aftermath. I think Sheldon Adelson wants to give Trump a hundred million dollars or at least pour it into super PACs. Because at the end of the day, he's going to want to come around to the White House and do exactly what Trump has warned against, which is to say, hey, I helped you get elected. I need a favor here. I need a favor there. Trump's big problem is if he takes that money or encourages people to give it to super PACs, he's going to lose a little bit of his brand, which is that I don't take money from anybody. I can do what's right. I don't care. I can tell him, thumb my nose at him and tell him to go pound sand. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may lose some of that branding, um, but he also may need the money. You know, I always said he should just go at it alone and sell a few golf courses and fund the whole darn thing himself like he said he would. I don't know if he's going to do that, but if Sheldon Adelson wants to give him $100 million, I guarantee you there are advisors of Trump who are telling him you'd be stupid to say no. Well, there's uh, there's a very beautiful hotel that Trump owns in Vegas that doesn't have a casino. Sheldon Adelson has a lot of casino licenses. He could sell him that. I, I've been in that hotel. I've stayed there. Honestly, it's not big enough for a casino. Well, they got um, all the they, land next to it that's that's vacant. I think that was the plan, was to put the yeah, casino on the possible. vacant land. That's possible. You know, I asked Trump about this in an interview, I don't know, a few months ago, if he regrets not having a casino. And he said, he said no, 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 I, I did my thing in Atlantic City. Uh, casinos are just poison. Hmm. So he, I don't think he wants one, but I could be wrong. I mean, you know, he could. he's a mercurial kind of guy when it comes to money. He could see the market shifting and decide he wants to invest in it. Or more importantly, I think his kids might. Because if he becomes president, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka will be running the Trump organization, and they might go in a different direction, and he'll be powerless to stop it because his Uh, shares in the company will be in a blind trust, and he won't be able to exert any authority. Very true. It'll be fascinating. David, hopefully we can talk again. Anytime, Brian. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. David Martosko is U.S. politics editor for Daily Mail Online. And uh, if you want to see his latest on the New York Times smear of Trump, I just tweeted it out, at Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More to come. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. So this past weekend, down in Oshawa, the Canadian Shooting Sports Association Stick to Your Guns Dinner. Had a great time, met great people. Always fun to be out and about. 
But on the drive back, you, you get to these points where there's n- you can't find a radio station, and my my current car doesn't have satellite, and I don't know. I've, I wanted to listen to something other than what was on my my phone, so I'm scanning. Literally, cannot even find music stations, and then, of course, what comes through? The the dulcet tones of I'm a raging radical lefty, Michael Enright, and a state broadcaster. And he's interviewing two different environmentalists, one who was sensible and one who wants his off of oil completely. One was in London, England, even though they live in Kingston. The other one is from Toronto, but was in Vancouver. Now, why do I bring this up? Because these people are constantly telling us we've got to get rid of oil. This is the environmental mantra. But they travel like nobody's business. Which brings me to Grand Chief Serge Simon of the Ganesatagi Mohawks. Ganesatagi is the reserve just south of Montreal. It's the one that if you ever take the Mercier Bridge across from Montreal to the South Shore to Shadow Gay area, that lands you right in the Ganesatagi territory. Chief Serge Simon was in Vancouver on the weekend where more than 200 kayaks showed up at the where the Kinder Morgan pipeline comes to, their terminal in British Columbia. Kinder Morgan's had a pipeline there for decades. They want to double it. 200 kayaks showed up, you know, just making sure they block everything, wave their flags. And among the kayakers was Chief Serge Simon of the Kanasatage Mohawks, again, just south of Montreal. This is important. Why? Because he told the crowd, as reported by the National Observer, the age of oil is over. With your help, if we all pull together, this thing is only going to be a sorry memory in our history. How'd he get there? How'd you get from Montreal to Vancouver without oil? Hmm. Well, if the age of oil's over and he's really against it, he couldn't have flown. No, couldn't have flown. Maybe he took the train? Uh, You know, via rail runs on diesel, I believe. So that would be a no. Uh, Drive? You're going to drive to Vancouver in an electric car? I don't think they have the charging station set up everywhere. You're going to run it on French fry fuel? We don't have that set up. These people are hypocrites of the highest order. I'd love to have their frequent flyer miles, because then I could take the vacations like they do. Like our prime minister, who goes to Fogo Island, goes to St. Kitts, goes to Whistler in between, telling us we've got to reduce our carbon footprint. Your thoughts, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Darlene's calling in about liberals and the Green Energy Act. Yes. So, Um, uh, (laughs) Darlene, before you get to your point, what do you make of that? You know, uh, Sapora Burnham, on on this interview show on the weekend, has flown out to Vancouver for a conference and then goes on radio and tells everyone they can't use oil. This chief goes from Montreal to Vancouver and tells everyone we can't use oil. What can you do other than shake your head and scream hypocrite? Well, I'll tell you what. They're all a bunch of liars, and it's going to be very hard, Brian, to get anyone, you know, as these candidates for the Conservatives come forward for the leadership, to get anyone to believe anything that comes out of their mouths. But I tell you what is working towards getting people, you know, taking their cars off. Every 
freaking Sunday. <laughs> I take my family, an elderly mother, a brother-in-law with Alzheimer's, my sister and I, for a lovely Sunday drive, lovely in quotes. We go for coffee and dessert, and every meter there's a friggin' pothole that's the size of, I, I don't know, of, it's just incredible. So you're banging into potholes. Then I'm looking, and I have for a while. Bike lanes, perfect. Not a little little hole. Well, you, of course. You bus lanes, perfect. Roads, they're, they're like, I know one road near me, if it was allowed, you could turn it into a fun road for kids because it's like waves. They go up and down. So somehow pull the kids and they just go <laughs> flying. <laughs> All right. So green energy. Kathleen Wynne says she's not going to spend $7 billion. She's didn't, well, she, she hasn't said that. She's uh, downplaying these reports. Uh, a lot of this work coming from the Globe and Mail, which appears to have gotten their hands on an advanced copy of their green plan. Right. Uh, billion, right. How are you feeling about her, her plan to move us all to electric cars and off of natural gas for our homes and off of oil? Um, disgusted, frustrated, um, don't believe a word. I think she's nuts. And, um, I, I mean, what are we supposed to do? You know, and how are we supposed to live with the prices? And, and you know, they won't allow pipelines. They won't, they're stopping. They're cutting jobs with their crazy policies. I remember one woman calling in not too long, <coughs> too long ago, and she wondered if they made their decisions after, you know, toking on, on a joint. Yeah, that was this morning, yeah. Well, this morning, yes, yes. And they must because... It's so frustrating, so irresponsible that, you know, it's so hard to trust any politician, to believe anything that comes out of their mouth. And it's just, I don't know. It's, like you said, with green energy, the amount of real energy that's produced, is, you may as well say it's nil. You know, and well, we're and, all the way up to nine percent today, all the way up to nine percent from green energy, and I think that's a good day. That is a good day mm-hmm. because I remember some of Little Green's stats. Oh yeah, and uh, it's it's so frustrating that um, you know the liberals, all levels, complete liars, um, just keep you know you have to deal with this because. But meanwhile, our infrastructure, but I see there's method in their madness, you know, with the Get roads, people out of cars. A lot of cars. You don't want to drive. I dread those Sundays. <laughs> I really do. Well, I think you need to take a better road. Go along the canal. Thanks for the call, Darlene. Okay. Bye-bye. I'm Brian Lilly. This is uh, Beyond the News. More in a moment. You, you know what? I want everyone to eat in the break. Go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. I was telling you about my friend Sheila Gunn-Reed. Uh, she's been on the program about her piece about Sophie. Prayers for Sophie in a crock pot. Go check it out. Back in moments. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. 
DeRozan, jumper, good! 22-point lead, and a rare occurrence at the Air Canada Center. Dwayne Casey clapping his hands, saying, I like that. Not bad for the Raptors last night. Well, it's last night? Yeah, I guess by the time, it was evening by the time it ended. It started at 3.30 yesterday afternoon. That threw me. I missed that. Uh, going around trying to find video games. Ugh. Children and video games. Anyways, Raptors winning last night, 116-89. to So for the first time ever, they are off to the Eastern Conference Finals. They're going up against Cavaliers. This is going to be fascinating. It is going to be huge for the growth of basketball in Toronto specifically, but I think it'll have a wider spread. I think it'll have a wider spread in terms of Ontario, perhaps Canada. I'm not sure people are ready to call the Raptors Canada's team the way they were with the Blue Jays, but depends on how far they can go. That's going to be great to see over the next little while. Uh, I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Coming up, we do have uh, Dean Brown, play-by-play voice of the Ottawa Senators and We've also got uh, an interview that I did with Michelle Rempel on an interview on, on a subject we we only kind of glossed over last week. We talked about it, but the issue of Yazidis. I want to go deeper into this. Yazidis being ignored in terms of uh, who is being helped by our refugee program. We're constantly told that the government wants to help the most vulnerable, and yet, and yet. We're not. We're not helping the people that really, truly are threatened by the likes of ISIS. Instead, we're just taking whoever the UN gives us, which is kind of a first-come, first-served basis. If that's the case, you're not helping the most vulnerable. There's other problems with the refugee situation and how they're handling it. I mean, it's been, a, it's been bungled from the start. Now we've got people relying on the food bank because the support that they were promised and the support they're getting may not be matching, or maybe they didn't understand. Municipal officials across the country, including here in Ottawa, worried about what is being dubbed month 13. The government-assisted refugees lose all of their support after 12 months. That means they go on local social assistance programs. Because of the way they brought people over, there is not enough, uh, there was not enough resources put into it. The job training and language training did not flow the way it should have. That means people that were, again, these people were promised everything under the sun. Come to Canada, come to Canada, come to Canada. And they think, okay, great, let's go to Canada. They come to Canada and they end up in housing that may not fit their family low income, and relying on food banks. Is that what they were promised? Is that the better life? And don't just sit there and tell me, well, at least they're not getting shot at. They weren't being shot at anymore. They were not being shot at. This is a false premise. We weren't taking people out of the war zone. We were taking them out of refugee camps. Actually, no, we weren't taking them out of refugee camps. That's just what the government told us. We were taking them out of apartments in places like Amman, Jordan, in Beirut, Libya. We've been lied to from the beginning, and I think the refugees have as well. 
And whether you supported the the push or not, the fact is they're here now. And they should get the support that they were promised. They should get the support that they deserve. And unfortunately, I don't think this government's going to do that. Why? Because the photo op time's over. Now they're gearing up to bring in another 25000 before the current 25000 are even settled. My, my parents came to this country without a lot of government support, but they spoke the language. They had skilled trades. They had a connection. That doesn't exist here. And people are being left on their own. Dean Brown coming up on the issue of the NHL playoffs, how Team Canada is doing the World Hockey Championships. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Insurgent. Believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. I've been open to speak with uh, Dean Brown, play-by-play voice of the Ottawa Senators, but he is actually caught in transit right now. So uh, as soon as we can get a hold of Dino, we'll, uh, we'll bring you our chat on what's going on in hockey. Of course, right now, World Hockey Championships going on. There's a game on right now, although it's Hungary, Germany. Not sure how many people are going to rush to the TV for that. And, of course, the uh, the NHL playoffs continue, but that with Dino in a few minutes. Just watching on CTV News Channel right now, all this discussion about um, David Cameron saying that uh, Trump's comments on Muslims are divisive and stupid, and, and, and he goes on. And there's a debate on that, but yeah, Trump's right on one thing regarding the U.K., get out of the E.U., and on that, on that front, Cameron is the one who is stupid. Now, I told you that I wanted to bring you a conversation I had with Michelle Rempel, because I don't think we got fully enough into this last week. Michelle Rempel is the uh, conservative immigration critic, and she joined us on the phone at one point. But I, then I, I was up on the hill, and I, I, we met in the foyer of the House of Commons and had a, a further discussion about Yazidis being helped, or in this case, not helped. The fact is, we, I played you the audio of Bob Soroya, conservative MP at the committee, asking, you brought over 25,000 people, how many are Yazidis? Yazidis, of course, are an ethnic and religious minority that are being persecuted, that are facing genocide. You'd think we might bring over a lot of them. Turns out the answer was, there's nine cases. A case being a family, so between four and six in each case, so between 36 and 54 people, out of 25,000. Here's my conversation with Michelle Rempel now. So you're in committee and you're asking questions about who's being helped, how they're being helped, and you find out that there's nine Yazidis, nine Yazidi cases. How did that topic come up? Well, right now the government, uh, we just started a study in Immigration Committee on the Syrian Refugee Initiative. Um, I was asking questions about uh, the government's cost estimates, which are significantly higher than what they anticipated. And um, we decided to ask a question about how many Yazidis have been helped through the initiative because we know that they are facing genocide. And uh, I was quite surprised at the number. So nine cases, but that doesn't mean nine people or nine individuals. 
That's right. It means uh, we did ask the government uh, department officials to clarify that, and they said that a case means a family. So again, we're talking probably a few dozen people. A few dozen people. We've brought in, we've brought in 25,000 people, and only nine from one of the groups that is being targeted for genocide. Did that shock you? Well, I think we need to get more clarity from the government on what they're doing to help a group that's facing genocide. I, um, I mean, you can't read about what's going on in that region without having your heart just break. And I, I really question what the government is doing right now in terms of their overall strategy to directly help Yazidis in the region. I. I fully appreciate that there's a humanitarian crisis that affects everyone in the region. It's very bad there. That said, um, these people are being eradicated off the face of the earth and we need to do more. Last week, Talal Abdallah and Majid Al Shafi came up. Uh, they met with Ms. Ambrose. Uh, did you have a chance to speak with them uh, about their plight? Okay. But have you heard their story about rescuing and trying to get three to four hundred Yazidi women who had been sex slaves into Canada, but because they're in northern Iraq, they're in Kurdistan, away from where they normally live, they can't be considered refugees. And yet, these are people who have essentially been. I mean, that to have their freedom bought from ISIS by trading goods. Well, we did ask the um, government today, the minister was at committee, about what criteria they were using to prioritize, because they say that they're prioritizing Syrian refugees above other refugees from other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And I think it's incumbent upon the government to tell Canadians what those criteria are, because when you hear stories like that, you know, you, you think. I don't, I, th I don't think there would be any Canadian who would hear that and say, how can, how can we help? How can we do more? And what these women have gone through is atrocious. And they have, you know, mental health needs. They have, there, there's issues that they have that are very unique in terms of integrating back into their communities. If they have a community to go back to, um, I just, you know, I guess if the government were listening to this, I would just say, you know, put politics aside. We need to do more to help this group. How do you feel the, the government's handled this issue overall? Um, I, I, my sense, you know, whether you're for or against helping this many Syrian refugees this quickly, I get a sense that so much of it has been haphazard, that so much of it has been, well, let's do it because it, it sounds good rather than, than helping. Because even the people we've brought here, uh, they are flooding into food banks, they are not getting the language training or the job training that they need or that they were promised and that's going to leave them when the government funding runs out after 12 months high and dry and relying on social assistance not fair to them not fair to the communities they live in well there was a great line that was written saying that these refugees are people they're not numbers on a scorecard and i think you know, I asked a question in the House of Commons today to the Minister about the fact that the Calgary Board of Education wrote to the Prime Minister to say that they had already spent millions of dollars on assisting Syrian refugees who have and legitimately have language barrier concerns. How is the government going to help them? Uh, the Minister responded with, I question the premise of that question. We've asked about language training services today in 
committee, if you read the transcript, you'll see that the officials didn't have data on jobs numbers, how many refugees had to have been able to find employees and employment. And that tells me that the government isn't thinking about the long-term success of refugees when they come to Canada. That is my big concern here is it's great that we want to help as a country. I think everyone wants to do that. But over time, how are we doing that? We can't just abandon these people. And I think that the government has to be very clear on these plans. They have to be clear about how they're helping provincial governments, municipal governments, and then they have to be clear to Canadians on what the cost will be. Today they told us that roughly it's like over $800 million. They didn't quite know if that... I, I couldn't discern from their answer whether or not that was across government departments or not, over what period of time. Their campaign commitment was $250 million. So to me, this just, it's very simple that they didn't have a plan. And we're going to really continue to hold their feet to the fire on this because I think over time, the question is, how is resettlement and integration actually happening? And the government has a big responsibility to account to the Canadian public on this. I, I get the feeling that the photo op's over, and so the, um, well, I guess the attention has moved elsewhere. It, it, am I, I'm asking you if I'm being unfair to uh, the government that you're opposed to, but I mean, that just seems like what it comes down to is the photo ops are done, okay. Don't worry about the fact that we get promised them the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, this should never be about photo ops. You know, I think there's a lot of great quotes that have been written about how if you're going to do charity, you shouldn't be seeking attention from it. And um, I think it was important for Canadian, Canadians to help in this situation. We did that as well under our former Conservative government. But, the, you know, you raised some really good questions, Brian. How are the government going to respond to these issues over time, and how much is it going to cost? And I really think that the government has to be clear so that refugee services groups and everyday Canadians can understand what that plan means. And right now, I don't feel like they have one. Thank you. And they don't have a plan. That's a big part of the problem here. They don't have a plan. They didn't have a plan to bring people to the country. That, that was done on the back of a napkin, quite literally. If you remember back to uh, the beginning of this push, it was bring people to CFP Trenton, then we can screen them. Then they realized the folly of that with a major outcry, because if we had imported, you know, say war criminals trying to escape from the area or terrorists trying to infiltrate, they would have been, we would have been stuck with them because the charter would kick in. So they said, okay, we'll do the screening over there. Then they had to slow down in several cities because they were bringing people over faster than we could house them. Now it's faster than we can give them language and job training. They don't even have jobs numbers. And then on top of all of that, finding out that we don't actually have, we are not actually helping the people that are the most vulnerable. This has been a vanity project from beginning to end. It was the federal government's vanity project. It was Justin Trudeau's vanity project. But the rest of us are going to have to pick up the slack. It's going to be the rest of us that have to say, you know what? We're going to have to feed people because they need fed. We're going to have to get people job training because they're going to be living in our communities. Month 13 is coming. On that note, as far as people relying on food banks. On that note, Food Aid Day, 
in support of the Ottawa Food Bank, which is going to need your help now more than ever. Thank you, Mr. Trudeau. Food Aid Day is Thursday, June 7th from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. You can have myself and others serve you breakfast. You can watch milking competitions. It's down at City Hall. This has been going on for several years now. It brings together the community in several ways. It raises money so that the food bank can buy beef from local farmers, which is then turned into ground beef, frozen, put into food hampers to help those in our community that need a hand, that need a hand up. June 7th, 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. You want to have me serve you breakfast? you got to be down there early. I'll be serving from 7 to 8. And uh, let me just go over the list of some of the other uh, celebrity servers from the, the building. Uh, Nancy Slater is going to be in there around 8. She's from Magic 100. Brittany Thompson from Country 94. Catherine Dines. Ian Mendez from uh, uh, TSN 1200. Michael O'Byrne from CTV Ottawa. Le- Leanne Kuzak from CTV Ottawa. And then, you know, you can watch Graham Richardson uh, face off against Allison Sandor and cow milking later on in the day. Stick around. We've got Dean Brown on standby. We tracked him down. You can't escape B-Lil and Beyond the News. Back in moments. Flatteris keeps it in over the line. Wires a shot. Slot a power play goal gets Canada a one nothing lead. Corey Perry with the puck for Canada. The captain on his birthday. Between his legs, tried to center. Now Perry in front scores. What a move by Corey Perry. And it is 4 nothing Canada. Dean Brown, play-by-play voice of the Ottawa Senators, joins me now. Dean, 4 nothing for Canada, but it, it was against France. I'm surprised it wasn't higher. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes when you play those teams, you know, you, it's hard to get your A game going because, you know, the coach can give you a speech and you can you know tell yourself a million times, but it's hard to play a desperate, intense game when you know you really don't have to. So, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's very, very difficult to ring them up sometimes against teams you should ring them up against. Now, right now, all eyes truly are on the game that's being played right now. Hungary leading Germany yeah. one nothing. This is, is vital? No, not vital at all. No, not not really vital. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not watching it. I'm driving, so I can't, I can't see the game, but... Uh, Germany has a Germany has a you know should have a better uh, a better chance of winning this game than Hungary. Hungary is not traditionally known as a hockey power, so uh, even trailing to Hungary is kind of I'm sure got people biting their fingernails in Germany. But in the big <laughs> scheme of things, I'm not sure Hungary Germany on the world hockey stage is going to alter the axis of the earth or anything. No, no, definitely not. Uh, speaking with Dean Brown about the the World Hockey Championships around right now, we'll get to some NHL playoffs in a minute, but. Uh, Canada is perfect, 6-for-6 six six, uh, in Group B. Group A, you've got uh, the Czechs. Uh, they've won four, lost one, tied one. Uh, and then, But the Americans, it surprises me, they're in the same group as us, but they're below Germany. Uh, yeah. What's going on with the Americans this time? Well, I, I think, you know, we talked about this when the World Championship started, and, you know, there's, there's a couple of teams that 
aren't as strong as they could be. You have to remember that, you know, for the world championships, um, for many, most countries, the strength of their team is dependent on, normally, is dependent on which teams are eliminated from the NHL playoffs, and that basically provides them with their players. So if, if there are teams... If there are teams that have a lot of, uh, in this case, American-born players on that are still in the playoffs, Team USA doesn't have access to those players for the World Championships. And this is kind of a double year for some countries, the U.S. being one of them. Uh, With the World Cup coming up in the fall, there's several of the better players for several countries who have said, I'll play play one of them, but I'm not going to play both of them, and the World Cup is the bigger of the two. So there are some American players, as there are for other countries as well, who've said, I'm, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to sit out the world championships this year, even though I am available to go, I'm going to sit out because if I'm going to play one of them, I'd rather play the world cup. So that's, that's really and one of the reasons why the U S isn't as strong as it could be. And as you say, it depends on who's out. So Ryan Ellis, uh, just eliminated with the predators last week, flies over and plays 21 minutes. He played a third of the game. That's, that's a, that's a feat in any uh, situation. Yeah, and the irony is on his own team, you know, other than power play, he's not a top four defenseman. So, you know, there's there's guys that are that are missing because they're still playing, and, and that's normal. But there, there's a couple of other guys, obviously, like you know, um, St. Louis is still playing. So one of their better defensemen, Shattenkirk, is is still playing right now. So they don't have access to him. But that's a fairly normal thing. But it is for countries the double whammy. For Canada, to be honest with you, it really doesn't affect us all that much because as a country, we're so deep that we could dress two or three extremely competitive teams and not have a problem. So if we have guys who are either injured or don't want to go, um, it doesn't really affect the, the strength of our team compared to the other teams in most cases. All right, let, let, you mentioned injuries. Let's touch briefly on uh, on the playoffs. Tampa Bay's up one nothing over Pittsburgh in the series right now, but Ben Bishop, he left with a left uh, leg injury. Uh, this has got to be bad news for the Lightning. This is, this is what we keep talking about every day is, you know, the injuries start piling up the longer things go on. Yeah, and you know what? That that may end up, that looked really bad, obviously, when he's taken off on a stretcher. That looks really bad. But I was reading a couple of things uh, this morning in the airport before uh, before I flew back home from Winnipeg, and um, apparently whatever it is, and obviously they're not talking about specifically what it is because injury information in the playoffs is very difficult to come by. But uh, there's an outside chance he could play in Game 2 of this series because apparently whatever it is, and most people assume it's a knee injury, uh, but whatever it is um, apparently is not as bad as it first looked. And so there's a, a possibility he could play again in this series and it possibly could be the next game. And there's also a possibility that uh, Anton Strawman is coming back from a broken leg. He could get back in, maybe even in the next game of this series. So, you know, what, when things look kind of bleak, um, it might not be as bleak as we first thought for Tampa as far as injury goes. And nobody really knows about Stamkos because, you know, a blood clot, that's, yeah. you know, that's such a, yeah. how do you, you know, that's a, that's a hard one to judge when that might be good enough to play again. All right, let's, uh, let's end on this, and that is, um, uh, this could lead to injuries, of course. Uh, the Blues playing very physically aggressive games uh, against the Sharks so far. They out hit them the other day, 28-14. Uh, is this going to be a big factor, the Blues being that aggressive, taking it to the body for the Sharks? They want it to be. That, you know, that's that's the way that team is built. Um, you know, in past years, they've had trouble bridging the skill gap between them and Chicago, and that has been an issue. But obviously getting by Chicago this year, they've gotten over that hump. But that's the way they have to play. 
Brian, that's a team that's based on goaltending, on playing solid team defense, on being physical. They call it in the West, they call it heavy hockey. And St. Louis is one of the best teams at doing it. So if St. Louis gets its way, if, if, if this series goes the way they want it to, that hit count will remain the same in every game. They, they want it to be a physical series. The more physical it is, the, the better more St. Louis likes it. All right. Got to leave it there. Dean Brown, thanks so much. Talk to you Wednesday. Talk to you Wednesday. I'm Brian Lilly. That wraps Beyond the News for today. Thanks for listening. Remember, I'm on your side.